Hey everyone, this is Tom Singer. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to inform you about a special offer that I have to join a brand new group called My Sales Call. If you work for a small business or if you're a solopreneur, having some people to talk about ideas and best practices and to have a focus and accountability around sales is so important. It's so easy to get caught up in the busy work that we don't do what we need to do to drive the sales in our business. So I have started a weekly call where people can get together and share ideas around sales and then make a commitment to the group of what they're going to accomplish for the next week. It's just like if you work for a big company, your sales manager would have a weekly sales call. This is your sales call. Go to mysalescall.com to find out more and sign up today. Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to the cool kids table. Over 530 episodes ago, I decided I was going to interview some really smart people who were doing cool things. And the reason I did this, it was a chance for me to get access to successful entrepreneurs because I know one thing is true, and that is success leaves clues. You can't help it. When you listen to these interviews, people give you a little idea, a thought, a nugget, a theory, and you, you can't help it. You pick up the parts that work for you and you run with it in your own business. I thought I was only going to do 50 episodes, and we are still going strong five and a half years later. So thank you for being part of this Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do family. Now today, I've got a special guest. Today, I have a guest who I don't know that he knows this. Maybe I've told him once, but he is one of the reasons that I became a professional speaker. He is one of the people who really inspired me that, and and not that, oh, if he could do it, I could do it. I mean (laughs) that he inspired me. Because he was somebody who wasn't famous before he started doing this, but he got into the world of speaking and and built a really legitimate career. And I used to be, my career was in sales and marketing, and you would go to a lot of conferences. And and back in the 90s and early 2000s, I remember twice seeing Jim Cathcart speak at a conference, buying his book, um, which we can talk about. He had a very famous bestseller. I'm going to mess up the title. I think it's The Acorn Principle. And uh, I remember reading that book and and it was so inspiring because it was how a little acorn becomes the whole tree. And it was so easy to digest and take with me. And I wanted to be that little acorn that could become the big tree. And he inspired me to do what I do today. And now I know Jim. I would say we're friends. And he gets to be a guest on my podcast. So I've come full circle. So Jim Cathcart, welcome to Cool Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you for coming on the show. So, Jim, why don't you tell everybody your background? What did you do before you were a speaker, and how did you get into this crazy business? One time years ago, someone asked my wife, uh, has Jim, she was working in the office at the time, and they said, uh, we're thinking about Jim as our guest speaker. Has he ever had any experience in whatever field that was? I've forgotten. And she said, yes, as a matter of fact, he used to do that. And then after she hung up, she thought, you know what? You used to do just about everything they ever call about. You've, you've had 40 different jobs since you were a child. And it, it was the perfect orientation for getting into a field where you have 
a client from a different industry every other day. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's really true. I started out, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. My dad was a telephone repairman. Mom was a housewife taking care of me and my little sister and my invalid grandfather who was in our front bedroom, uh, disabled from a stroke. He was in vegetative state for the last seven years of his life. And my grandmother lived there with us and mom took care of the the four of us. My grandmother needed as much care as she did offer care. And um, I never expected really to do much. I figured my life would be okay, but ordinary. You know, I, I didn't aspire to become excellent or great or noteworthy in anything. So I unloaded trucks and boxcars. I worked in a bank as a teller. I worked as a bill collector. I um, sold cars for a while, sold motorcycles, worked in a grocery store, sold donuts door to door when I was a kid. I uh, had a paper route. Uh, man, you know, I, I did a lot. Then when I got married, I was playing guitar and singing in nightclubs and um, beer joints, and I decided I needed a real job. So I said, hey, I want to go where money is, either real estate or stocks and bonds or something like that. And um, I decided it would be stocks and bonds. So I became a uh, salesperson for Investors Diversified Services, and I got my securities license and my life insurance license, annuities license. And I struggled for a couple of years and failed at that. And then I sold cars and then I worked in a friend's grocery store. And then I got a job as a government clerk. And I was an assistant to a man who wasn't busy. And one day I heard a radio show like this podcast. And it wasn't Tom Singer, it was Earl Nightingale. (laughs) And Earl Nightingale was on 900 stations around the world at the time, 1972. And he said, if you will spend one hour extra every day studying your chosen field, five years from now, you'll be a national expert in that field. And Tom, that blew me away because I did the math. An hour extra every day, that's, you know, that five days a week, uh, 50 weeks a year, over five years, that's 1,250 hours. Well, if I focused or you focused on any subject, for that much, for that long, of course you would become a leading authority on it. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, what do I want to be an expert at? And I didn't know. And then I realized after a week or two of thought, I want to do what he does. I want to be like Tom Singer is today. You know, I want to grow up and be a a thought leader, radio personality, a, a person who gives speeches and helps other people grow. But here I was wanting to help other people succeed, and I had two problems. I had never given a speech, and I had nothing to say. <laughs> you hadn't succeeded yet. <laughs> no, I hadn't succeeded. So what am I going to do advising others? So I had to become literally fanatical about studying the field of self-development for five years. And I mean, serious textbook fanatical, almost you know, bordering on insanity fanatical. Well, and it's interesting because now, I mean, this field of of being, you know, what they call, I don't know, they call it all different types of things now, right? An information expert or whatever. Yeah. There's there's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands oh, tens of people. Tens of thousands, yeah, maybe you know, hundreds. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of people who are who are doing things around this. But if you go back to 1972, there wasn't really an industry. I mean, the National no, Speakers Association like, hadn't even been founded yet. <laughs> well, in the bookstores back then. 
there was no business section, no self-help section. You know, the, the idea of self-improvement was a skeptic, you know, met skepticism. People said, you don't need to just go to school and then get a job and just work. And when I went into this business and I was selling Earl Nightingale's training materials at first, I would go door to door to businesses and they would say, no, we don't need training. We hire well. <laughs> well, it wasn't true, but that's what they believed. Sure. And even if they had heavy turnover, they thought, well, we hire well because. <laughs> fast, forward, would- fast forward to 2020. There's still a lot of businesses who say that. I know. Isn't that absurd? Yeah, we don't need to train our people. We have the best people. We're not meeting our potential, but, you know, we don't need training. Yeah. And I was teaching soft skills, which weren't taught in college. So they thought, well, what's the value in that? You know, make better listeners out of them, teach them how to ask questions well and to probe and uncover needs, teach them how to sell. Nah, nah, we'll just give them product knowledge and turn them loose. Hey, Jim, that's really fascinating that just sort of off the top, I mean, you're, you're riffing here. But you pulled out a series of things that Earl Nightingale's materials that you were selling were teaching people. And these are the same skills today that we need to teach inside businesses. Better question asking, uh, better listening skills. How to do everything you said. I'm like, that's the programs we do today. Interpersonal communication. You know, yeah. I mean, leadership and management, the same issues today. So my my son... He works in a luxury hotel. He's director of HR and he has 600 employees. He's been there 20 plus years. And I talk with him frequently about the issues that he runs across. And and they're all the same issues from the 1930s and 40s. You know, this person doesn't listen to their coworkers. This person uh, is all emotion and no logic. This person's all logic and no emotion. This person doesn't give forethought to what the effect of things will be. This, you know, it goes on and on and on. It's the same thing. So I was advising a young man today who I do, who I mentor, and we were talking about the importance of him. He's in his 20s about joining a Toastmasters group. He doesn't want to be a speaker, but just to be better at speaking. He's actually taking, as his company's putting through him a training program, but I advised him to get involved with Toastmasters for about a year just to continue on after he does the training program. And he was asking some questions. And I said, you know, Toastmasters was founded in the 1920s because the biggest fear that people had and the thing that held them back the most in careers was public speaking. They were scared of it and they weren't good at it. And I go, if you fast forward to 2020, people still are scared of it and they're still not good at it. That's right. Yeah. The need doesn't go away. It's a, it's a common human condition and every generation has to overcome the same obstacles. You know, I was just this morning reviewing the list of recipients of Toastmasters Golden Gavel Award, which the international organization gives to one person each year. And I went back to the earliest, which was the 1950s. And one of the recipients along the line between the 50s and now was the founder of the National Speakers Association, Cabot Robert. Mm -hmm. Another was Walter Cronkite, Another was Earl Nightingale, my mentor. Another was Zig Ziglar. Another was Anthony Robbins, Les Brown, Jeannie Robertson, Jim Cathcart. You know, I had the honor of getting it in the year uh, 2001. Nito Kubain received the award. Uh, Wow. And Toastmasters, you know, although I was only a Toastmasters member for two or three months in Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in the 1970s, their, their little process in the local chapter meetings or club meetings is to teach you communication and leadership. 
And there's a known formula for developing those fundamental levels of that skill. And uh, I'd, I'd recommend that to anybody on earth. Absolutely. So it's interesting because you said it was sort of 1972 when you heard that and you got this. And for five years, you became fanatical about it. And it was about 1977 that you became self-employed, that you made that full-time leap to being an entrepreneur. By the way, in 1977, Jim, I was 11 years old. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> You know, I was still well, I was still I was still collecting the bicentennial coins that came out in 1976 that had the yeah. founding fathers on the back. I still have them. <laughs> I'm sorry I gave away my flag from that year, but but I still have the coins. Um, in 1976, I worked at the national headquarters of the Junior Chamber of Commerce, the JCs. And they had 350,000 members at the time and I was the national director they called me national program manager of individual development, which was leadership training and self-improvement, you know, goal so, setting. So in the five years, you had clearly become an expert on that. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had gone from just listening to recordings, going to group discussions and meetings and reading books and that sort of thing to where I was really involved in leading group discussions and then conducting training programs other people had designed. And then the USJC said, how would you like to come to Tulsa and be on the national headquarters staff in charge of those? And so I did. And there I got to collaborate with big names throughout the country and create training materials that 350,000 people would subsequently use. Hmm. And then in 77, I went out on my own. Ta-da! And I've been an entrepreneur ever since. So what do you love about the entrepreneurial life, having worked in a bunch of businesses? Well, it, it, the answer is instant, freedom. I love the freedom, but I also love the responsibility because I demand to be held personally accountable for my own choices and actions. I don't, you know, I don't tolerate that. I absolutely require that. And so, you know, it's like somebody said, well, if you did so-and-so and someone found out about it, you know, they could blackmail you. And I said, well, they couldn't blackmail me because <laughs> if someone caught me at something and they said, we're going to tell your wife or the world or what, or your banker or the IRS, I would say, let's call them now. <laughs> and I'd conference call them into that dialogue and get it over with. You know, I, I believe I should face whatever is out there that's scary to me right now endure the pain, go through the healing process and get back to growing and, and succeeding again. You know, so if it's good news, get on with it. If it's bad news, get it over with. So, Jim, what do you think the biggest changes are in entrepreneurship from the mid-1970s until the 2020s? Oh, the resources have exploded. There are 100 million resources today that didn't exist then. You know, that's the thing. Today, any it's like if you want to learn to play guitar and sing, all you need is a phone. Mm -hmm. Just go to YouTube and say, teach me fundamentals of guitar, fundamentals of song. So I got I got a, I got a Nest thermostat for Christmas, right? Because we have there you go. Because I want to be able to have all the techie things, so I can control. Yeah, I can control the thermostat when we're traveling, or I can turn it up. You know, if my wife needs it hotter yeah. when I'm away. Uh, and so I actually Googled how to install the Nest thermostat. And guess what? There's dozens of videos on how to do that. Exactly. And they're very specific. Yeah. So that's the thing. Entrepreneurs today have at their fingertips more resources than anybody in the history of humankind. Mm -hmm. 
And and that's even if if they want, let's say they want somebody like you or me to advise them. Well, if they don't mind it not being personal, then they can access your podcast from anywhere. Yep. They can access my recordings on YouTube and on Facebook and on LinkedIn and you know all these other resources. They can they can go to take entire courses that we've created that are digitized and the learning materials are right there online and they can attend with other people and discuss the lessons or they can click through, contact us and say, hey, let me tell you my specific personal situation. I'd really like to have you at my elbow for a while Mm -hmm. to advise and coach and guide me as I grow. So Jim, what advice then do you have? I mean, there's all these resources, there's all this stuff. What advice do you have for somebody who's thinking, yeah, my ladder's against the wrong wall. I need to start my own thing. What, what, how would you walk them through doing this? What, what does someone need to do if they want to become an entrepreneur? First thing to do is get clear on what it is you want. Not, it is, not what you want to do. What do you want? So look beyond what you want to do. What you want to do is a, is a path for getting you to what you want. And what you want is not, I'm not asking about a thing that you want, like I want a Rolls Royce or I want a house by the lake or whatever. Those may be nice and, and may be appropriate. But what do you want your life to be like? What kind of people do you want around you? What, what sort of a place do you want to live in? What sort of work do you want to do? Who do you want to hang with? Who would you like to be admired by? That's a great question. And, and in my book, the, uh, the Power Minute, which was originally titled The Self-Motivation Handbook, I have a future you exercise, and it asks those kind of questions. You don't have to have the book to do that, but, but you know, it's in there if you want to guide. So I actually and love I, the concept of The Power Minute. And this is a book that has just been released or about to be released. Is that right? Yeah, it was released last year as Self-Motivation Handbook. We reworked it. And it's, it's now focused on the minute between thinking about and taking action on. Yeah, that's, that's what I love. I mean, I love Can you explain a little bit more about that power minute? You bet. Everybody in the world has good thoughts from time to time, great ideas from time to time, and wonderful impulses from time to time. But very few of the people in the world truly intelligently act on those. If you think of a power minute as one of those bubbles that kids blow, you know, they take soap and they put it in a dish and they get a little plastic ring and drop it in the soap and then they wave it in the air and it makes bubbles that float around. Think of soap bubbles like that as your power minute. When you have an idea of something to do or something that you care about that you want to remember, if you don't write it down, then that bubble is going to float through the air for a moment and disappear. Your power minute is gone. The chances of you thinking of it again later are almost nil. Likewise, if you think of doing something nice for someone else and you don't act on it or make a note about it, which is acting on it, then the power minute is gone and the chances of it happening are almost nil. I was walking along in I've forgotten the name of the little town, but it was on the Yangtze River this past year, 2019. I took six trips to China mm-hmm. for lecture tours. And on, on two of those tours, we took a cruise on the Yangtze River and conducted a seminar. And during part of each day, we would take shore excursions. 
So we went on a, a shore excursion to a temple and we're walking along, me and my colleague, a woman named Fiona. And um, we walk through the area where all the vendors are and all the, all the beggars and, you know, we're walking along cobblestones going back down to the ship. And I see a beggar, one of many, but this guy's got gnarled legs and he's sitting on the ground, uh, obviously has never stood in his life. And there's a hat next to him for tips. And, you know, I smiled at him as we walked by and he smiled back. And it was a genuine smile. And we kept walking and then I felt that impulse to do something. And I said to Fiona, hang on a second. And I turned around and I went back and I put some money in his hat. But more importantly, I squatted down to his level, eye level, and stuck out my hand and shook hands with him. And he spoke Chinese and I spoke English, so we weren't able to use words. So I just made the universal gesture of thank you, that kind of a giving gesture from your chest outward with your hands. And I don't know what I was thanking him for, but I just wanted to let him know I valued him as a fellow human being. And I didn't judge him. So, you know, I just, I guess I was thanking him for his smile. And then we shook hands again, and then I went on my way. Well, the next day I was given a speech in um, Yangzhou. And um, I was speaking to about a thousand people, and Fiona was handling my slide show. And during the presentation, I said, let me tell you something that happened yesterday. And I talked to them about that beggar. And the audience went, <gasps> they gasped. And I thought, what? Wow. Did I tell it that well? And then they pointed and I looked behind me and Fiona had photographed that moment. And it was on the screen behind me. Yeah. Wow. And I said to the audience after we processed that emotionally for a moment, <clears throat> I said, Moments like that, for people like him, last forever. For me, it took almost nothing to give the, the tip, you know, the donation, and to take a moment. But for him, the rarity of someone stopping and acknowledging him as equal, without judgment or without social rank between them, had to be truly special. You and I every day have hundreds of those little opportunities and we walk right past them. It could be picking up a piece of trash, holding a door open, acknowledging somebody, giving reassurance or, or information to someone, uh, looking at a confused person saying, excuse me, can I help you? You know, something like that. Or it could be an opportunity to help in a way that earns a profit. But if we're not open to those and not aware that that's a fragile moment, that that bubble could burst before we act on it, then we won't act on it. And the world will not be a better place like it would have been had we acted. If you have the capacity to make the world better and don't, shame on you for cheating the rest of us out of what you could have given. So entrepreneurs have hundreds of thoughts all day long, right? We all we all cross yeah. ideas and things like that. And you're right. I laughed when you said it. If you don't write it down or do it right then, 
you know, sometimes I'll like go to my email and be like, oh, there's that email I have to reply to. And then something else beeps and I take care of that. And then I can't remember what the heck I was actually going yeah. to my email to do. How can entrepreneurs start grasping those minutes? First, you've got to be, you've got to form the habit of writing it down. It's not so much acting on it in full as it is capturing it at once. Earl I, Nightingale I, said, ideas are like slippery fish. If you don't gaff them with a pencil, they'll get away. I, I still carry a pencil or a pen and, and, and a notebook with me so that I can write things down on a to-do list when I have ideas like that. Because if I don't, I wouldn't do any of them. Yeah. And not on separate pieces of scrap paper. No, I have a, I have a list. Yeah. Things, I have one I little notebook or one little something. I still carry a pocket calendar. <laughs> you know, when other people are using their phone as their calendar, I use mine for reminders, but I use this as my official document. And I want to show you something. I know that our listeners aren't going to see this. They're, but they're on audio, but it. okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, I love it when people walk away while they're being interviewed and, and then bring yes. something to the camera. That's always my favorite because we are an audio podcast. But what, whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to be awesome. I have these pocket calendars. Oh, wow. He's going got a, back. He's got a whole stack years, of them. He's got like a decade's worth of pocket years calendars. Years and years. I mean, this is just 2008 through 2017 <laughs> that I'm showing you. But I've got them going way back. So do you go back to them sometimes and, and pull them out and leaf through for, for inspiration from t times gone by? I do. I do. Uh, see, I keep a record. One of my personal daily disciplines is do 100 push-ups every day. And so I have every day for the past 1,150-some-odd days a record of how many push-ups I did that day and in what order. <laughs> so if I did 40 and then rested and then 40 and then paused and then did another 20, then it'll be 40 slash 40 comma 20. And I know <clears throat> from looking back exactly what the deal was. And here's today's. So most, most people your age aren't doing 100 push-ups a day. That's true. I'm 73 years old. 73 years old and he's in the shape of like a 53-year-old. I know. <laughs> I know because I'm 53. There you go. Well, I run mountain trails three days a week. Nice. And well, that helps a lot. It, it certainly helps. And I want to shift gears, gears here. Recently, okay. I ran across an old video by a mutual friend of ours, by Brian Tracy. Yeah. And Brian, this was probably 20 years ago, and he was talking about the importance for entrepreneurs to really find the ability to like themselves. And this sort of resonated with me because of some personal stuff that I'd gone through where maybe I got off track a little bit in my own head and the stories that were running maybe weren't as positive as they needed to be. Mm -hmm. And I've been asking people now for the last couple of months, how important do you think it is for entrepreneurs, not just to, to trust their instincts and to trust themselves, but how important it is for an entrepreneur to like themselves? I think it's tremendously valuable. And whenever I think about something like that, I try to go, what's behind that, what's behind that, what's behind that, until I run out of new things to discover. And what's behind liking yourself is respecting yourself. Because if you don't respect yourself as a good person, then it's going to be hard to like yourself. Mm -hmm. You might find yourself amusing, <laughs> but that's not really liking, right? Right. There are people that I like on the surface, 
kind of like like frosting on a cake, but the inside, I don't like the cake, right? Yeah. Or I don't trust them. As a matter of fact, I can, I can think of some people who I like them. I like being around them, but I would never leave them a key to my home. I would never tell them something about my family that would make my family vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people who I would say, hey, I'm going to be out of town that day, but I'll leave a key and here's my code. And these are my kids' names. <laughs> and uh, here's where you find a change of sheets if you need one. Right. 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 No, nope, yeah. absolutely. So, I mean, who would you trust your grandkids to be babysat by? Or, so there or, you go. Or, or who would you want your grandkids to choose as role models is what I always there, say. Whoa, your kids that's even to better. Role that's even yeah. better. So how do you like yourself? First, learn to respect yourself. How do you learn to respect yourself? What if you, you think you've been a scumbag up to now? Well, today's the first day of the rest of your life, isn't it? Yeah. Sure it is. Oh, that's awesome. So turn the corner and don't follow those patterns anymore. Yeah, but if, what if I what if I slip? Then correct. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like going on a diet. I, years ago, I was fat. I weighed 200 pounds on, on a 5'9 uh, frame. Today, I weigh 150, and I have for the last 40-plus years. Well, when I was fat... If I, I went on diets every year successfully, every year I'd lose like 20 pounds and then I'd gain it back. And the next year I'd lose 20 pounds and I'd gain it back. And finally, I decided one day I'm no longer going to do that. I don't respect that about me. So I'm going to stop dieting and become a slender person. Now, what's the difference? Slender people don't have to diet. Mm-hmm. Slender people had good eating habits and good exercise habits, and they make better life choices. And so I decided to study slender people and do what they do and stop doing what fat people do. <laughs> and it took me about three or four months to lose a bunch of weight by making those changes. Uh, but I ultimately lost 52 pounds, and I've been slender ever since. I've got a 30-inch waist now, and it was about 38 at the time that I made that resolution. Well, Likewise, I used to smoke two packs a day back in the 1970s. Yeah, but didn't, didn't they consider it healthy back then? No, they just <laughs> considered it desirable. It was cool, and it was what grown-ups do. Right. So it was your goal, if you were a kid, to learn to smoke. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I realized it was bad for me. I knew there was nothing cool about it, and I was developing upper respiratory problems as a result of it. So I said, I'm going to become a non-smoker. And one of my friends said, oh, you're going to try to quit. And I said, no, I'm never going to smoke again as long as I live. And they said, how can you know that? <laughs> uh, because I'm the guy. Right. You know, it was because it's me that would do or not do it, and I've made that choice. And I said a little prayer, Lord, you know, if, if I ever smoke again, you can have it all. Of course, it's yours anyway. <laughs> but but uh, I will never smoke again as long as I live. And I went through three months of withdrawal, and I was miserable. But the day I quit, I gave away my ashtrays. I gave the engraved cigarette lighters I'd gotten from family members and friends to strangers. So I knew that they would never come back to me. Um, I notified all my friends that my home was now a non-smoking home. They were aghast at that idea. (laughs) 
They thought it was terribly rude of me because smoking was a human right. <laughs> well, we, I remember being a kid and people smoked on airplanes. Absolutely. I smoked on airplanes. Sure. Yeah. So, so Jim, I kind of think I know where this next answer might go because of some of the way you've talked about some of the previous stuff. But one of the things I talk about is this gap that exists from potential to performance. And some yeah. people just get stuck. They have all the potential in the world and they never really get results. Whereas other people, maybe who have less potential, seem to achieve everything that they go for. So why, oh, yeah. do, why do you think some people can knock it out of the park and other people get stuck in this gap? Because they decide to and they act on it. Just strictly. What is the number one success skill for entrepreneurs? The decision to commit to succeeding. Mm. When you decide, I am committing right now to becoming successful, all other things become committee work. How are you going to do it? I don't know. I had not worked that out yet. But I've decided it's going to happen. How long is it going to take? Don't know. What if it takes longer than you thought? Then it takes longer than I thought. What if it hurts more? Then it's more painful. <laughs> what if it costs more? Well, okay. What if you fail? Fail for how long? Well, failure is not a life condition. You know, it's not a stain that you can never get rid of. It's a momentary circumstance. Well, and almost everybody who I interview on the show shares some story of failure along the way. They they tried, oh Lord, they yeah. tried to be a stockbroker and they didn't make it. They tried this and they didn't do it. And That's me. they just picked themselves up and tried something else. For a year and a half, I was trying to sell mutual funds and life insurance and stumbled and failed. And then years later, I reflected on why I failed. And I wrote a book that would fill the gap. You know, it would teach people how not to do what I did or how to do what I didn't. And, uh, the company I'd been working for bought a thousand copies of that book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's a great that is a great story. I've actually been hired to go and speak at some of the companies I worked for, where I've gone back and been brought in to, to talk to their employees, and that just makes me laugh. It's like I wanted to get out of here, and now they're paying, yeah. now they're paying me to come back in and talk for an hour. But I had I had absolutely failed. I was making less than six hundred dollars a month. From sales and my my needs were over six hundred. <laughs> I was newly married with a baby at home, and uh, I had to leave the company because I wasn't making enough sales. And I realized years later that I was going out delivering a canned sales talk again and again and again and again and again, and I was making enough calls, but the calls were me standing there saying something I didn't believe. So my lack of commit conviction showed and people didn't buy. Okay. That makes sense. So I wrote a, a book called how to be your own sales manager. Cause mine had been kind of lame <laughs> and I uh, co-authored it with Dr. Tony Alessandro, who was a college professor at the time. Mm -hmm. And that book took off and he one day called on the company investors, diversified services, IDS, and sold them a thousand copies of that book and they had no clue. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So it's interesting that the book was called How to Be Your Own Sales Manager. One of the things I've started recently is a small little weekly uh, Zoom call for people who are solopreneurs who don't have a sales manager. Because well, one, of the, one of the things I realized in my own career is I, I was in sales and you know, whether you liked your sales manager or not, you had a call every Monday and you were going to talk about what did you accomplish last week? What are you going to do this week? And as a solopreneur running my own business, I, I don't have that. 
And I realized that that's, I liked that. That would keep me going. And so I've got right now a small but growing group of people who want to focus on what do I need to do? And every week we get together and everybody shares a best practice of something that maybe they read or that somebody told them in an old sales job. And everybody talks about, okay, last week I said I was going to do this. Here's what I achieved. Next week I'm going to do that. One of the people a couple weeks back on the call, uh, we were talking about using BombBomb to send out uh, video emails. And he liked the idea, so he had subscribed to BombBomb, and that week he sent out 65 video emails to people who were in his, you know, prospect world. Yeah. And he sent out so many that somebody from BombBomb called him because he was a brand new customer and he used it 65 times in the first, like, three days. And they decided to tutor him because he was so into it (laughs) on on how to do it even better. And it all came about from the call, and he agreed he was going to do it. And so then mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, then next week I'm going to do 30. So, you know, 65 yeah. seemed like a lot. But uh, but we're, we push each other like you would on a sales team. If I was a sales guy in Austin and I had a sales guy on the call in San Francisco and we were friends, we'd challenge each other for what are you going to do sure. this week? Well, as a solopreneur, you don't have that. So I created, I call it my sales call. And if anyone's That's interested, the they can go to mysalescall.com and it talks all about it. Yeah. You know, there's a company called Vistage. Oh, yeah, I know. V-I-S-T-A-G-E. That used to be called the Executive Committee, T-E-C. And there were tech groups, Vistage groups all over the world. And um, these are basically they're kind of they're entrepreneurs and small business owners who don't have that board of advisors or that team of, of colleagues to uh stimulate them and motivate them. They don't have the mastermind alliance that so many of us have built on our own. And so that's a service that they get through that. Yep. And uh, that's, you know, that's fairly costly going in, but, but very profitable once you're in it. Oh, I'm a big fan of Vistage. I'm a big fan of EO and of the alternative board and all these groups that exist. I put my own mastermind group together as so many people who are in the National Speakers Association have done over the years. And we've been together for seven years and they are my board of directors. I run. Absolutely. I was 29 years, a member of Speakers Roundtable. Yeah. And when I joined Cavett, Robert and Bill Gove, the first, you know, the founders of NSA, they were in the group and we became very, very good friends. And and all the bigger names of NSA, National Speakers Association, have been in that group during the time I was there. You know, Patricia Fripp and Nito Cobain and, and yeah. Jim and Naomi Rohde and people like that. And, and today, you know, even more members, Don Hudson, of course. But um, those were my advisors and my closest confidants. And they still are today, even though I'm still not active. I'm currently not active in the group. For 29 years, I was. So sure. I've got Jim Tunney and Mark Sanborn and Scott McCain and Shep Hyken and Chad Hymas and all those people within my circle within my reach. Yep. Uh, it's it's awesome. So Jim, I've got a couple of more questions for you before I can let okay. you go. This is this is exciting. I'm fan I'm fanboying out that I got Jim Cathcart <laughs> on the show. But here fanboy. But yeah. before before oh look at this. He's got his guitar. So we'll let you play in just a minute. Sure. But first I've got to thank in fact you can play okay. lightly in the background as I do the commercial. Because yes. I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to assure that you sound amazing. 
Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing cool people like Jim Cathcart. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, so Jim is Jim is a showman. He has a guitar sitting behind him while I'm interviewing him. So all of a sudden, yep. the guitar well, came out. You know, that's my that's one of the cool things I do. I've got another gig. My part time job is being a professional guitarist and singer. And my wife and I have been performing in nightclubs and bars and beer joints and, awesome. and at special events and private parties for uh, more than a decade. Wow! And and um, you're like you're like the captain and Tennille. Yeah, and I, I've I've started incorporating guitar and singing into many of my major seminars and keynotes. And when I'm in China and I'm speaking to a thousand people or two thousand people for three or four hours a day, I always find a way to incorporate some kind of song into it. Nice, nice. Well, and as, as just, we close, as we close fun. out, as we close out, I'll let you close out with a song. So, oh, okay. But, but we got a couple more questions first. So keep that guitar quiet for just a minute. All right. So, Jim, I call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What's yep. the coolest thing in business Jim Cathcart is doing these days? Coolest thing that I'm doing is, is the tours in China. An agent over there had been stalking me for a few years, and they decided finally to invite me to be part of his small group of uh, people, talents that he represents. And he said, if you'll make me your exclusive agent for all of mainland China, I'll bring you four days a year to major events where you speak to thousands of people and we'll translate some of your books into Chinese and uh, you'll earn a lot of money. <laughs> and for five years, I've now gone to 21 different cities in China. I've spoken to tens of thousands of people usually a thousand to 2000 of them at a time. Um, I've toured some of the greatest places in the entire country. And I mean, coast to coast, top to bottom in China and, or coast to mountains, top to bottom in China. And uh, while I'm over there, I perform. So a lot of times, you know, I'll just do a musical performance. I, I was at, my agent's office in Thamestown, Thames, like the River Thames in England, Thames. Thamestown is a replica of ancient York, England, built near Shanghai. And it's a popular spot for wedding photography and things like that. And my agent is headquartered there. And one day I just picked up a guitar and walked out onto the street and started singing. <laughs> and the people gathered around and then people showed up and started filming it. And then my agent came out and videoed it. And then we created a product out of it and more people came and I got more opportunities to perform. Nice. That is nice. So here's one of the popular songs over there. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence That's awesome, and I think it's the first time we've ever gone musical 
on cool things entrepreneurs do. So you hold that as as your your special chip here on the show. Cool. Now let's go ride motorcycles. I've got mine warmed <laughs> up in the garage. So Jim, I could talk about Jim Cathcart, your career, your success, especially the success that you've had over the last, you know, to call it 20, 25 years. I think that's awesome. But thank you. I think great entrepreneurs are more than just, you know, about themselves. I think great entrepreneurs are observers. So I love to ask people who come on the show, when you look out into the world of entrepreneurship, and I know that you're like the entrepreneur in residence for the entrepreneur program at, I think, California Lutheran University, something like that. Correct. Uh, When you look out into the world of entrepreneurship, and I know you do because that's part of what you study, who do you admire? Rather than specifying an individual, the people I admire are the ones who decide I'm going to do whatever I need to do to be the kind of person who would have a great career. I've had people come to me, especially in China recently, they say, how do I become a great speaker? I tell them, become a great person and be willing to speak. It's not about your speaking skills. It's about what you bring to the table. When I watch TED Talks and when I, when I talk with people that are starting up new businesses or I'm doing a workshop over at Cal Lutheran for the entrepreneurs. The people who come up with the best questions, the ones who I can tell are going to make it, are not the ones who are asking me about techniques. They're talking about concepts and ideas and they say, well, what was your thinking on this or how, how should I be looking at this? In other words, they're saying my view may be imperfect or incomplete, What's a better way of thinking about this? So the people I admire the most are the ones who are willing to change themselves and to be temporarily wrong or weak or awkward in order to get to a better place and be able to serve more people and make the world better. That's, that's a great answer. Last question I have for everybody who comes on the show is what do you do to give back to the greater good? Because I think entrepreneurs, we got to do more to make money. I think if we're fortunate, and let's face it, We're fortunate. You got to do something to help others. What do you do? I have, through the entrepreneur program at Cal Lutheran, uh, a few mentees or protégés assigned to me each season. And so I take those, those people on to provide coaching and guidance. But more than that, I look for people who need courage. And I try to find a way to help them be more courageous. You know, most people think of encouragement as what is really just superficial uh, reassurance. Oh, you can make it. Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Oh, don't worry about it. Oh, you've got, you know, no, that's not encouragement. Encouragement can be identified because it instilled courage to end courage. So how do I give you more courage? I point out what you're good at. I point out what you got going for you. I point out opportunities you're not noticing. I remind you of things that you already know. I admire and praise things that you've done well to give you more courage going forward because you can see the muscles in what you already do that give you the strength you will need. Wow. So Jim, if somebody's listening to this episode and they're thinking I have, they've never heard of Jim Cathcart, or maybe they have, and they're like, I have to find this guy. I have to be able to buy his books. I got to be able to, to, to peruse his website. How do people find you? First, just remember my last name, Cathcart.com. That's my website. And on all the social media, I'm Jim Cathcart. 
And if you do a search on Jim Cathcart, you'll get like 350,000 hits. And, <laughs> and they're all, all, and they're all you. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Except the 90% of them are speakers bureaus that are just claiming the name. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I got a call recently from someone named Tom Singer and he spelled it T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R. And when, just like you. Just like me. And when Google was brand new, God, 20 years ago, he had reached out to me because when you Googled 20 years ago, Tom Singer there were some articles he'd written. There was some stuff I'd written. It was like interspersed. Yeah. And I heard from him recently and he said, yeah, I'm unfindable on the internet now. <laughs> he, he basically said that he gave up trying to find anything that was him because everything was articles in my podcast and, and everything else. He yeah. said, he goes, I'm invisible on the internet because of you. Wow. Well, tell people to go to, or I'm going to tell them. Go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or some, you know, some book source and type in The Power Minute by Jim Cathcart. That's my newest, latest, greatest book out nice. of 20 books I've written. Nice. And uh, it's, it's 336 one minute ideas for how you can motivate yourself and others to do what needs to be done when you don't feel like it yet. <laughs> I, I'm going to go get it. Good. Thank you. So, hey, Jim, thanks for being a guest here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Any last words? Last words. Ask yourself every day, how would the person I'd like to become, the better me, how would that person do what I'm about to do? Wow. This has been full of nuggets. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every episode. If it wasn't for the audience, we wouldn't have a show. So if you like the show, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Uh, maybe subscribe to the show. But more important, go tell your friends because everyone who tells me they listen to the show say they found it because somebody recommended it. So the most important thing you could do is go tell somebody, hey, I got a good podcast for you to listen to if you're into entrepreneurship. Check out Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Hey, we're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody just as cool as Jim Cathcart. And you're thinking, what? How will you ever find somebody as cool as Jim Cathcart? But we will. But in the meantime, go out there, put your ladder against the right wall, try some new things, get that entrepreneurial spirit flowing. And while you're at it, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>